Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For Stuff You Should Know listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is Consider the Lobster by David Foster Wallace. Consider the Lobster is a collection of four of Wallace's best essays and is available from Audible. To try Audible free today and get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash stuff. That's audiblepodcast.com slash stuff. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me, as always, is Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and that makes this the super uh, sampling version of Stuff You Should Know. The Super Stuff Guide to Sampling. Could that be an audiobook? Why not? Let's try. As a matter of fact, if you're listening to this right now, you owe us a dollar. <laughs> Mail it in. <laughs> yeah. Mail it into 3350 Peachtree Road, <laughs> Atlanta, Georgia. Care of Josh Clark. 3031, 30326. Yes. Sweet 1500. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. With that done, we can continue on with the. Uh, podcast you know what we should have gotten really creative and just like sampled old podcasts and yeah. put them together and to how, jerry do you feel like doing that no i do, do a mashup that's what they call that sure that's what the kids call it these days yeah yeah no we'll just do it straight instead All boring right. i guess is what you call it i have an intro let's hear it have you heard chuck of a man named armin boledian uh, Armin Tanzerian? Nope. No. I, I have not then. Armin Boladian is the owner and sole employee of a company called Bridgeport. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now I have. Bridgeport is a music catalog company. Yeah. Um, and like many other music catalog companies, they basically just sit on a lot of copyrights to popular songs, the musical composition of those songs, right? Yeah, it's almost like owning stock. Yes. Like you buy stock in these musics and wait for them to be worth something. Sure. Or you can allegedly, shadily get your hands on already valuable music. Sure. And then... Like stocks. Do what Bridgeport did, which is uh, start suing anyone and everyone who ever sampled it. Um, So Bridgeport made a a big flap in 2005 when they um, sued Jay-Z for his song, Justify My Thug. Yeah. I want to go ahead and, and... Add a disclaimer here. I am far too square to talk seriously about hip hop. <laughs> like I'm really into elevator music right now, seriously. Yeah. Um, so when I say things like justify my thug or Jay Z mm-hmm. or breaks, right. I'm speaking strictly as an outside observer, an interested outside observer, right. but I'm not I'm not from the streets, so like I, 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 got you I, I don't Yeah. I, I was I was down, as they say, from like eighty-seven to ninety-five-ish. That was those were my big hip-hop years. Nice. And then, but these days, you say Jay Z, and I know that's the that's the handsome man married to that pretty lady. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm, not, a, I'm not down with the new stuff. We had a similar trajectory. Yeah, except okay. I used to be into it, and it sounds like you never were, right? 
what in the name of God is a waka flocka? <laughs> you know? Yes. All right. So uh, anyway, Bridgeport sued Jay-Z for sampling Madonna's Justify My Love. Somehow Bridgeport got its hands on the copyright to uh-huh. Justify My Love. It's a pretty big song. Sure. And when Jay-Z sampled it, they sued him. Now, this guy runs around suing everybody. Apparently, he had like 700 lawsuits wow. against just people who sampled George Clinton's work. Well, that's and, a big attorney's fees right there. Yeah, it is. And But when it pays off, it pays sure. off. So this guy has come to be known, or Bridgeport, or people like him uh, have come to be known where called sample trolls. Remember patent trolls when I gave like the absolute wrong definition of that? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, um, a sample troll is somebody who just buys up songs, hangs on to the copyrights, and then sues people who sample them without asking. Right. On the one hand, you can make a case that, well, these people are breaking copyright law sure. by not asking and getting permission to use samples of this. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, Bridgeport has made it their aim to sue anybody who sampled it at all, even if they've taken the work and made it unrecognizable. Right. Which that kind of a lot of people are on the other side of the aisle going like, that's ridiculous. That yeah. stifles creativity. This is just one of the many interesting aspects of music sampling. <laughs> wow. That was a proper intro. It's been a while. Um and that's one, but it's probably the biggest as far as uh, what people think about how music is used and creativity and ownership. And one of the things that you just mentioned was that Bridgeport is some big corporation. And if you talk to, like, uh, Hank Shockley, the former producer of Public Enemy, he will say that, you know, we don't have any problems paying music to artists who created this stuff. He said, but they're owned by these corporations now, and it's just... It's greed on their part. Yes. Which is not but there good. are two sides to no. every story. No. And um, the music industry, as we'll see, kind of went on a tear of like suing everybody and protecting themselves. Yeah. And um, now you kind of understand like, oh, that's why no one feels bad about this whole music piracy thing. Well, and there was a big rush at one point because it was a new genre. I mean, we'll get into the history of how it came to be and all, but... It was a new thing. And so all of a sudden, you know, for the first, you know, several years, that was open territory. Yeah. And that's when, like, the, that was the heyday, if you ask me. Well, folks nerdier than us might be confused at this point because um, sampling also refers to digitizing music. Yes. Uh, what we're talking about is taking a piece of an already established um, piece of music. Right. A selection of it and then recreating it, using it. Put maybe putting it back to back to back in a loop. Sometimes. Um, Oftentimes, actually. And then creating something new using this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's what we're talking about with music sampling. All right. It's been around for a while, too. Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned um, taking a snippet. Let's go ahead and just get a couple of examples out there. If we want to start out with trying to explain to people what a sample is, and uh-huh. most people know this. Okay. There are no further places to look than... Uh, James Brown's uh, 1970 song, Funky Drummer. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and hear that, that little break beat. Oh, it's like that, huh? Yeah. All right, so that's instantly recognizable. So that's Funky Drummer. That's Funky Drummer, and that was, uh, who was the drummer there? Uh, Clyde Stubblefield. Mm, yes, Clyde Stubblefield. Who has never gotten a scent. No, but he's pretty cool, man. 
He is not trying to sue anybody. He's not seeking anything, any damages sure. from. And this literally thousands of songs have used that drum break, right? Yeah, James Brown has been sampled, and this is not just that song, but a lot of it comes from Funky Drummer, 2,729 times. Okay, so... um, The leader. And you can make a case that Funky Drummer provided the basis for hip-hop. Like, all early hip-hop songs, especially in, like, the mid to late 80s, all use that drum break, right? Yeah. Um, Stubblefield's not going after anybody for that, but what he did was get together with some documentarians who made something called Copyright Criminals, a, a uh, documentary called Copyright Criminals, uh-huh. to release a special version of the DVD that has all new, ready-to-sample Clyde Stubblefield drum breaks nice. that he created just for this. And if you want to use them, you just give them like 15% of your of your sales. Nice. So he's like doing it. He's trying out a different model. Well, and the other side too, which we haven't mentioned, is is and this is a point that a lot of the hip hop producers would make is that some of these people are being pulled from obscurity. For instance, the second clip we're going to play, which is the Amen break mm-hmm. from Amen Brother, and it was a B side from a very little known song from a group called the Winstons. Ooh, we can hear this one too. Yes, and we'll hear that right now. So that one, to me, is slightly better than Funky Drummer. So that's the Amen break. That's the Amen break. And, dude, that one has been sampled thousands of times. So that one um, gave birth to um, drum and bass and jungle. Like, all, all jungle music is based on the deconstruction of the Amen break. If you're interested in hearing about it, there's a really cool movie or a video. It's like 18 minutes long. Uh, it's a YouTube video, and the title is Video Explains the World's Most Important Six-Second Drum Loop. Wow. So it gave rise to Jungle. Um, NWA Straight Outta Compton used that. Yeah. Uh, Cold Cut used it. Yeah. Um, and Third Base famously used it as well. And hundreds of others. Yeah. I like Third Base. And that was because we want to give due to some of these uh, folks who created this stuff. That was Gregory Sylvester Coleman, who was the actual drummer. That played that lick. And that was the Winstons? Yeah, the Winstons. Excellent. Gregory Sylvester Coleman. So, yeah, I, what I think what you're originally saying is some producers are, are saying, like, you ever heard of Gregory Coleman? Yeah, exactly. So they're they're bringing some of these folks out of obscurity right. and giving them their due. And I'm sure selling some records for them here or there. Yeah. So Although that record's really hard to find, obviously. Okay. Well, they need to press it again. Maybe they should. Okay. Uh, so you take uh, an LL Cool J, ladies love Cool James, for instance. Is that what LL stands for? Yeah, you never knew that? No. Yeah, I he even was, listened to him extensively. He was James day. something, and, you know, the ladies love Cool James. Or E-O-Z Cool J <laughs> cookies, I'm bad. See, you know. No, I did know. I've just fallen off like you. Oh, okay. Um, so you take the funky drummer from my James Brown song, and you take uh, Sly and the Family Stone's Trip to Your Heart, the, the uh, background vocals, and then basically you loop those over and over and over, and you have a little song called Mama Said Knock You Out. Oh, we're about to hear that? Well, let, we're going to hear them separately, obviously. We already played the funky drummer, and now this is uh, the trip to your heart backing vocals from Sly and the Family Stone, whom I love. <laughs> All right, so that's it, dude. Over and over and over with Ladies Love Cool James rapping. Okay. 
and you got a huge, huge hit. Yeah, oh, that was a big one. Oh, yeah, huge. I wasn't a big LL Cool J guy, though. I like the one, I don't remember what it's called, but it had like the boom box on the cover of the tape. Like the album artwork was a boom box. Yeah. That was good. Uh, it, had, it had I'm Bad on. Oh, it did? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's not always songs that you're sampling. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you're sampling stuff from like a TV show or a movie or uh, like the uh, Living Color song, Cult of Personality. Remember that? Oh, yeah. They had like an FDR speech. Uh, I think it was Kennedy. Or no, was it FDR? Ask not it had Kennedy too. Okay. But that that was Kennedy. Or, but he said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That yeah, was yeah, FDR. yeah. Uh, Doubting Thomas, they were like a skinny puppy offshoot. They oh, really? sampled, um, I think, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Sure. Um, extensively throughout this one album that they, they created. It was pretty good. Well, in Guns N' Roses, on their song Civil War, remember at the beginning of that, they played the Cool Hand Luke bit hmm. uh, over the you know guitar, and then Axel's Weasley little voice comes through. Oh, and uh, Metallica's one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sample Johnny Got His Gun. That's right. In the video, too. Right. So those are all samples. You might just think, oh, that's a snippet from a movie, but it's a sample just like you would use uh, the Amen break. Right. Okay. Um, the first sampler, if you want to go back in time a bit, um, was the Mellotron. Yeah, the actual, not not the person, but the machine yeah. that someone used that was created for sampling, right? Yeah. I mean, it was it was the first time that they had ever... You know, it's basically a little keyboard. Mm -hmm. They're very basic. I wish I had one. They're really sweet. And it has a volume, a tone, and a pitch control, a low and high octave you can switch between, and then three samples, um, uh, A, B, and C, flutes, violins, and cello. And it was the first time that they basically had ever sampled anything like that. So you press the keyboard key, and it plays back a pre-recorded loop of a single note, of that single note on a flute, let's say. Okay. Which seems, you know, you take that for granted now when you buy these keyboards where you can do a million different things. But back then, the Mellotron was huge. Oh, yeah. And even before that, people would take magnetic tapes, like yeah. real-to-real tapes, and, and literally cut and splice them yeah. to create their own samples. Well, and if you want to hear a uh, classic example of the Mellotron flute... And I do. Uh... Listen to this little clip right here. Is it Aqualung? No. Ready? Aqualung. No. That was the intro for the Beatles' Strawberry Fields, and that was Paul McCartney playing the flute uh, sample of the Mellotron, on the Mellotron. Crazy. Pretty cool, huh? I always thought it was just flutes. And then like King Crimson and Yes and Genesis, like they went crazy with the Mellotron. Yeah. Like, Genesis was awesome early on. Yeah, they, I got, they I got stayed some awesome, but in a different way. <laughs> you know? Yeah, a very different way. Very. Okay, so you talked about the origins with the tape splicing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you can... It go back even further than the Mellotron. Was it the 60s? Uh, yes. There were these two dudes. They were uh, the two Pierres, I call them. Um, Pierre Schaefer and Pierre Henry, but probably Pierre Henry. I bet. Um, and they were, I guess what you would call a couple of um, avant-garde musical artists, and they created what's called Musique Concrete. 
It's freaky stuff. Did you hear any of it? Yeah, I did. There's um again, YouTube factors in heavily in this episode. Yeah. Um, if you want to find out a little bit about music concrete, um, check out the 1979 BBC documentary, The New Sound of Music. That is very awesome. I did watch that actually. Yeah, that guy was a really great host. Yeah, it was he really laid it down. So he talks about music concrete, where it's basically like these people before there were tape recorders even. I don't know how they were doing this. I guess reel to reel. Yeah, it was reel to reel. And then these guys were doing splicing. Um, they they would record the sound of a can falling, or the sound of a metronome, mm. or you know a piece of music off of you know the radio, and then they would splice it all together into something that's like barely listenable. Right. But it <laughs> yes, was it was electronically reproduced music. Yeah. And it formed the basis of everything that came after it that had anything to do with electronic from like Pink Floyd yeah. to all electronic music to the residents to Silver Apples to all, all these people who craft uh, work yeah. who created electronic music. It's all based on this these two guys creating this in like 1948 or something like that. That's crazy. Yeah. Did you see the part of the video where they took the tape by hand mm-hmm. and were dragging it through? Yeah. That ended up sounding like, and I think was sort of the origins of record scratching. That's what it sounded like to me as well. Of course, it was produced back in the day, so they didn't say it was before record scratching. This is about <laughs> to give rise to this. Actually, yeah. it was coming out at the same time. So that was 1979, and that's when like DJ Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash were starting to get really good. Yeah. They were playing high school, so people were taking notice. That is true. So jumping back again, in 1961, James Tenney uh-huh. uh, took Blue Suede Shoes from Elvis Presley and have you heard this thing? Yeah. It's very avant-garde is the way to put it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Into collage number one was what he called it. And it, it is in many, many parts virtually unrecognizable. Yeah, oh yeah. It's really hard to listen to. It is very hard to listen to. It's a it's a uh, a piece of electronic music that's deconstructed. It's so, it's Blue Suede Shoes deconstructed. Yeah, big time. And I mean, if you look back and you're like, holy cow, the the video on YouTube shows like the guy sitting in front of his setup. Yeah. And it's like pretty extensive. And oh, the yeah. guy was obviously, you know, out of his mind. <laughs> yeah. He um, was on lots of drugs, wasn't he? But <laughs> when you look back at it and you're like, oh, that was what, 1961? That's pretty impressive work. Yeah, exactly. Um, Dickie Goodman and Bill Buchanan in 1956 mm-hmm. had a more commercial version of, of uh, I guess you would call it musique concrete. With Flying Saucer. Did you listen to that one? I did. That was the stuff we heard on FM radio growing up. Remember all the that mashup stuff they used to do? Like, like uh, Bette Midler's From a Distance with like the during the first Gulf War? <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember that. No, I mean like when the radio stations would do these. Um, well, let me go and say what it was and play a snippet. Um, Flying Saucer, they took uh, rock and roll hits from that era and mashed it up with a fake news report about aliens landing from outer space. Yeah. And it sounded a little something like this. We interrupt this record to bring you a special bulletin. The reports of a flying saucer hovering over the city have been confirmed. The flying saucers are real. That was the Clatters recording. Too real. We switch you now to our on-the-spot reporter downtown. Come on, baby, let's go downtown. Take it away, John. So that's the stuff that we heard on FM radio. Like, they would do, I remember when I was a kid, they would say, like, 
uh, we're going to call so-and-so right now. And and they would say, hey, how you feeling? And all of a sudden you'd hear, but I couldn't sleep at all last night. And then they would ask him another question. It would be like an interview, right. and the answers were snippets from, from rock songs right. answering, which is really like, I mean, it had its heyday in the 70s and 80s for sure. I don't have a clip, so I'm going to have to describe it, but the Bette Midler thing was slightly different. It would be like Bette Midler's From a Distance, interspersed with um, patriotic speeches. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So, that, that was sampling. I guess so. In its most uh, jingoistic form. <laughs> uh, at the very least, it was a mashup, right? Those. Oh, by the way, those Flying Saucer guys, um, Buchanan and Goodman? Yeah. They went on to do a lot of those things. Like they did one during the energy crisis of 74, I the energy crisis stuff. of 79. Yeah. But it'd be like, um, uh, how much gas will be rationed? Just enough for the city. Dude, I remember that. That's what I was remembering. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh. I was I, eight years old. I was not cognizant at that time. <laughs> I had a lot of like poop, my own poop on my hands from like playing with it at that, when you were thinking, wow, this is really neat stuff. Yeah. I was a little radio kid back then. Oh, also, I want to say one more thing. I um, I went a little deeper in the music concrete thing. Okay. And apparently, Philips, right, the manufacturing concern. Oh yeah. Um, they tried to get into electronic music in like the late fifties and had this whole little wing that was that let a couple of guys just go to town, like trying to make popular electronic music. Hmm. And if you search um, Acid House from 1958 on YouTube, these guys did a pretty good job of it. Really? It's very clearly like the predecessor of like, it's listenable. It's not just like. Yeah, yeah. Just, it's nice. not, it's not even avant-garde. It has like a, a beat to it and a melody and it's just, it's really neat. Interesting. I don't have that clip either. We should do a podcast on the Moog. That should. Okay. That'll, that'll be coming. Didn't you guys do that on the B-side? Uh. I think so, but we'll, we'll do it up. Okay. We've gotten requests for more music stuff. That's why I picked this one up. Oh, gotcha. So you flash forward a little bit, and uh, you mentioned uh, Cool DJ Herc, and Gram- DJ Grandmaster Flash, who mm-hmm. a lot of people think that was the, the group. It was Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, mm-hmm. if you remember. And uh, they hit it big in 1980 with the song Freedom, which sampled Get Up and Dance by the band Freedom. Yeah. Pretty straight up. Well, that that kind of took this whole thing into mainstream. That well, and that's when scratching started too, wasn't it? Yeah, Grandmaster Flash definitely started scratching. DJ Cool Herc started sampling very clearly. Like, he's the guy. Right. He's from Kingston, Jamaica, and he moved to New York in 1967, I think, and started bringing, like, his turntables to block parties. And he would just, he'd find, like, a, a drum break or something. And then a drum break from another song, and he just keep like putting them together. Wow. So it was like one long drum break, maybe bring in a little bit of a bass line. And I went back and listened to some of it, and it was good stuff, man. Was it? And he's doing this in like the the mid seventies, and uh, yeah, he started sampling as we know it, like turntable sampling. Crazy, yeah. Innovating, Josh. That's even better <laughs> than crazy. Uh, Marley Marl is someone else we should mention if we're talking about the, the early heyday. Mm-hmm. He was a house producer for the Juice Crew, which was Big Daddy Kane and Biz Marquee, among others. Yeah. But he also produced Eric B. and Rakim, uh, LL Cool J, and he was like, he's often cited as like the early leader. What of, about Redhead Kingpin? I don't know that. What is that? He's, he's like in there somewhere. Oh, is he? Yeah. Big Daddy came in. You just blasted me with the nostalgia. 
Oh, yeah. Remember the hat? Yeah. Remember the Gumby haircut? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The uh, cool. What do they call that? The high high right? Oh, I always thought it was called the Gumby. <laughs> That's what you call it. Huh. <laughs> well, they may call it the Gumby haircut. I don't know. In Toledo. It's a fade, essentially. Big Daddy Kane. Um, the Beastie Boys. See, what I was talking about, like back in the day in the, in the 80s, late 80s, they were constructing full songs from dozens of samples. And this was before you had to pay permission rights and stuff like that. So you get a song like Hey Ladies from Paul's Boutique, which is, if you ask me, the pinnacle for the Beastie Boys. Paul's Boutique or Hey Ladies? Paul's Boutique. Yeah, I don't know if it's the pinnacle. It's one, I think it's one of several pinnacles. Well, Check Your Head was great, too, but mm-hmm. Paul's Boutique was great. Hey Ladies used 16 samples, and that was not on the low side, but uh, Terminator X of, of Public Enemy mm-hmm. and the Beastie Boys would craft songs out of dozens and dozens of samples. And that's that's DJ Hurricane you're giving props to. He's the Beastie Boys DJ. Was he always? I believe so. Okay. Uh, but I think they all like wrote the stuff together. Okay. Um, as we'll find out, because the the uh, court case against the Beastie Boys was Newton versus Diamond. Ouch. And we all know who Diamond is. Dustin Diamond. <laughs> no. Mike D's brother. No, no, no. Uh <laughs> Groups like De La Soul, Public Enemy, and the Beasties were con- crafting these songs, whereas nowadays, partially because I think they're not as good and creative, and partially because you have to pay rights, yeah. you'll get like a kid rock who just plays this one loop over and over, and that's the sample he uses in his song. Yeah. So it's not like he's crafting these songs out of dozens and dozens of samples. Well, Public Enemy even said, like, after all these lawsuits and threats of lawsuits, if you're crafting a song out of 17 other songs, you basically have to like figure out something else because you can't yeah. do it anymore. And I mean, what a buzzkill too to make a song and then take it to the to the your record company overlords who say like, okay, we can get this cleared, we can get this cleared, this one we can't clear, no way we're ever clearing this so one. So go back we can and get redo everything. Yeah. So you have like, I don't know. Two thirds of your song is intact, but the other third is it has holes in it. You know, that's it. Kind of takes away from the whole thing. But at the same time, I mean, again, it's breaking a law. It's a copyright law, and it's not an arbitrary law. It's not a. It's not a superfluous law. There is validity to it. You know. Well, let's go ahead and talk about it then. Okay. Copyright law. The one that changed everything. It was. It was not the first. Copyright lawsuit. I think those guys um, who did the flying saucer thing were the first to start attracting copyright lawsuits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but the first one, as far as that, that changed hip-hop, I guess, was uh, Bismarck Key landed a beef from one Gilbert O'Sullivan, who wrote the song Alone Again, Naturally. And what, what did 70s. he use it for? For You Got What I Need or whatever? No. Oh, no. Alone Again. Oh. <laughs> His 1991 song from I Need a Haircut, um, that album, it's called Alone Again. And um, Bismarck Key lifted pretty heavily from that. And he was signed to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers got sued by the owners of Alone Again Naturally, right? Uh-huh. And the judge ruled in um, the copyright holder's favor against Warner Brothers. So all of a sudden, Warner Brothers, big business, big company, sure. starts circling the wagons like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, we're really exposed right now because yeah. all of our hip-hop artists are running around sampling anybody they want to. Right. And now we can get sued for it. And the judge caught a lot of flack because he said, and not only 
not only am I ruling in your favor, I think that this should go to some sort of criminal prosecution. Wow. Right? Because this is – their defense, Warner Brothers' defense was, it's rampant. Everyone's doing this, and we've been doing it for 10 years. Right. Like, what's your problem? And the judge was like, well, if that's the case, then we, we need to really start looking into this, and that shut everything down. That's when sampling went from art to business. Yeah, I'm surprised it took that long for people to catch on. Yeah. And it was money is what did it. As sure. sales and – when you know, it was just like DJs and queens – was no big deal in the 1970s and early 80s. Right. But all of a sudden, these artists, these hip-hop artists were making money yeah. on work from that was previously recorded by other people, and people saw green, essentially. It's true. They saw dollar signs. They did. Um, but let me ask you this. Should the original people, the original artists, like I can understand just hating on corporations because they didn't create this at all. They right. just happened to own it or whatever. But if, should the original artists expect some sort of compensation for somebody who's making millions of dollars by taking some of that original work? Do they what, do they deserve any kind of consideration? I think so. I think I agree too. It, it, depending on how, like, what degree the work has changed, right? You know, I, I say use the crap out of it, but get permission and pay royalties. Yeah, like if if that's the genre you're, if that's what you're choosing to do. Like, no one's forcing these people to do that. If that's what you're choosing to do, then you've got to play by the rules. That's what I think. Huh. And then go wild with it. Well, I guess that's kind of like the status quo now, and that's not working necessarily. It's leading to, like, your beef with Kid Rock. Well, my beef is that he's just not very good. <laughs> it's, lar- it's larger than that. You be yeah. careful, man. He gets in fights and stuff. Yeah, Waffle House is in Atlanta. Yeah, so he knows where we live. <laughs> I saw Biz Marquee at the airport one time, by the way. You and me hung out with Biz Marquee once. Really? Yeah, played PlayStation. Yeah, I saw him on the on the little internal train, and I was like, is that F? Yeah, that is. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. I thought for about a half a second, and I was like, <laughs> that yeah, that's man him. wearing that gray, <laughs> curly, powdered wig? No, no, he didn't Biz wear that. Biz Marquee. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's talk about what the cost of it is. Um, $10. No, not $10. Um, at first, it was something, uh, it was called a buyout. So you purchased rights to sample a song. It wasn't that much money. But like I said, as sales grew in the rap and hip hop world and, uh, you know, rock band said it too, they started to pay, uh, rollover rates, which is you got to pay per your sales. Right. Which all of a sudden, you know, the bill got larger and larger and larger. Yeah. And you're not necessarily just paying one person. No, no. You might pay the, uh, copyright owner of the composition of the music. Mm hmm. And if you use a specific recording, rather than record that composition yourself and use it, right. then you have to pay the owner of that particular recording, which aren't necessarily right. one and the same. Right. And they both might want equal amounts of money rather than giving you a deal, you know? Or if you're Vanilla Ice, <laughs> you would just slightly alter Queen's famous bass line from Under Pressure. Mm-hmm. Not even so much as credit them on your album. Mm-hmm. Forget asking for rights. He didn't even say, like, special thanks right. to, to Queen. And uh, settle out of court eventually for an undisclosed sum of money. He raises jet skis now under the name Vanilla Ice. Does he? He well, also he, ha- he has a home renovation show, too. Does he really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He flips houses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty weird. It's a little... Oh, well, it's not weird. It's weird for him to do it. Uh, MC Hammer. Mm-hmm. Very famous for his uh, sampling of uh, "And Can't Touch This" and his pants. Super freak. 
Oh, yeah? Yeah. Did Rick, he Rick not James. pay royalties or something? No, he did. Okay. That was all on the up and up. He's and, a reverend uh, now. Is he really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was back then. Well, he's a you gotta televangelist pray. now. you got to pray just to make it today. Right. So is Ron from Run DMC. Really? Yeah. Huh. And, and Ice Ice Baby is out there flipping houses. Yeah. They all got to do something. And <laughs> Dustin Diamond from Saved by the Bell. Uh, it was not a rapper. He was evicted. He was uh, in the process of being evicted. He had he launched a, a web campaign to save his house. I remember that. I wonder what ever happened. I don't know. Um, the drum intro for Led Zeppelin's When the Levee Breaks, that thing has been sampled dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Yeah, but it's so massive and it's so immediately recognizable that it takes over a song. You know what I'm saying? Like I yeah. don't I don't think it's a it just it it it's basically like oh this this is a Led Zeppelin sample rather than like that's the great thing about um Amen brother. It's like no one ever ever heard of that but it was a perfect drum break. Yeah. That led that le- when the levee breaks it's just it's too Led Zeppelin. So too recognizable and you're yeah. off of it. Yeah. I okay. just started thinking about Robert Plant. Right. <laughs> I think they were down with it, though. Jimmy Page, I remember, was uh, totally cool with it. Yeah? Yeah, with them using that. Sure. Of course, it wasn't his lick. No, it was John, John Bonham. Bonham. Yeah. Uh, He's not around to say anything. <laughs> no. In 2003, uh, the Beastie Boys, I, I said uh, the landmark case, uh, Newton v. Diamond. Mm-hmm. Um they did a sample, and we'll hear it right now. The very beginning of Pass the Mic contains this six-second flute stab. Do so you hear that? Yes. It's like three notes on a flute. And they got the, the rights, the sample rights, um... For the sound recording, but not the compositional rights, hmm. because they were like, you know, this guy played it, so we'll pay him. But it's three notes on a flute. Like, we don't feel like we should have to pay compositional rights. Yeah, I always thought it was something like eight notes was the cutoff or something like that. Like, there's a I set number of notes. I, I remember that from being a kid. I don't know why that would have come up when I was a kid, but I, I seem to remember that. Well, the BC Boys won their case, actually, and the judge said that the brief composition... Um, consisting of three notes separated by a half step, is not sufficient to sustain a claim for copyright infringement. Ouch. So uh, that was, uh, we already played the clip, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. So that was it. And also, you not only hear it at the very beginning of that song, but you hear it underlying the entire song. What's the best sample of all time? Best best use of a sample? Uh, Your favorite. How about that? It doesn't have to be best. You know what? My favorite is from the BC Boys. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, hey, ladies, remember when um, it's it's from uh, Ballroom Blitz. You know that song? Ballroom Blitz. Yeah. A terrible, terrible song. Yeah. That's a sampled, uh, Beastie Boy sampled that song in Hey, Ladies, when they break that uh, one part down, it goes, she thinks she's the passionate one. That's from Ballroom Blitz. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So that's wow. my favorite one. I definitely wouldn't have ever, ever caught that. Uh, I, I used to love the BC Boys back in the day. Have you ever heard um, uh, uh, the Pop Will Eat Itself? Uh, yeah. Back in like the early 90s, they were kind of yeah, electronic. Yeah. They had a song, they, well, their one big song, Psychosexual, actually sampled um, a uh, classical composition, Eric Satie's Gymnopedia. Nice. It's really awesome. I, I'd heard, I love Gymnopedia, 
and I love psychosexual. And then one day I just heard it just right. I was like, oh, my God, that's that. That's, that's one of my favorites. Favorite, like, probably of all time was um, Ice Cube's Good Day. Yeah. Using the Isley Brothers' footsteps in the dark. Yeah, that was good. And then Dr. Dre's The Chronic was like, that was just the soundtrack of one year of my college life. Oh, yeah. And that was a lot of George Clinton in yeah. there. Tons. And and Dre was actually one of the first people to stop sampling and start uh, recreating uh, stuff with live musicians himself. Which is called producing. Yeah. You're right. And now he has his own line of headphones. Uh, should we talk about Danger Mouse real quick? Sure. The Grey Album? Yeah. He famously in 2004 did a mashup of the Beatles' White Album and Jay-Z's The Black Album and called it The Grey Album. Very yeah. creative. And uh, EMI, who owned the Beatles' uh, recordings, even though Jay-Z and Paul McCartney were totally fine with it, they shut it down and said, you're not selling this. No, but it made his career. Yeah, and it got around on the Internet such that he was like, fine, I'm not selling it, but everyone's going to hear it anyway. I'll go hang out with CeeLo and do some stuff in MF Doom, <laughs> and we'll just uh, make some money from that instead. Oh, Chuck, what about cover songs? Yeah, since 1909, you can cover songs. You can play a song faithfully, um, especially live. Yeah. Uh, and not pay the owner of the composition a cent. Yeah. As long as you don't alter it, like play it in a different language or something like that. Right. Um, and there's a lot of people who say, well, wait a minute. That's like, that's a sample in its entirety. This is crazy. Yeah. What is the deal? And, uh, everyone has said, we don't know. We'll figure it out in another 10 years. You know what bugs me? is when these new country artists will cover a song that's like a year old, like another song, and release it to great acclaim. Well, that that used to happen like a lot. Um, like more than one person would record the same song and yeah. they'd get released about the same time, like yeah. in the 50s and the 60s. Um, so just be glad you don't live then <laughs> because you'd be going crazy. That's true. And... Uh, just so you guys know, the reason we're able to play these clips is because something called fair use, which we've talked about a lot with Jerry. Yeah. Because so just put your pens down, lawyers, because <laughs> we know what we're doing. Uh, it's only in the United States, and it is the exclusive right uh, granted to us to uh, play a snippet of something without acquiring permission, as long as we use it as commentary, criticism, uh, research, teaching, or news reporting. Well, wait a minute. This is what we're doing. Does that mean that? If this is heard in Australia, though, does it, are we still covered by fair use? That I don't know. No, oh, well, we'll find out. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for music sampling. This turned out better than I thought. You got anything else? No, I mean, you got any more samples? You to could play? do. No, I'm, I'm putting my turntable back in my pocket. Okay. And uh, you know they have those little I, iPhone uh, turntables now. Yeah. Which is, eh. come on. Yeah. Um, Jerry and Cicadism. <laughs> if you want to uh, learn more about music sampling, you can type that into the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, which means it's time for listener mail. Ooh, before listener mail, Josh, I want to point people um, who are into sampling and the history of sampling to go to whosampled.com. I'm glad you mentioned this. I meant to mention it too. It's a really awesome website and it's um allows you basically you can you can search for artists who have sampled and who have been sampled and uh 
search for songs, and they basically throw them up side by side as two turntables, like the original sample or the original, uh, you know, break or whatever, mm-hmm. than how it was used. It's pretty cool. And you can play them simultaneously. Yeah, that's awesome. Something. Else. So that is whosample.com. Yeah. All right, Josh, I'm going to read this. It's kind of a long one. But this is about uh, spies. And this is from Tom. And he said that his family has a strange tendency of being arrested on suspicion of being Kiwi spies, New Zealand spies, in France. They all wear trench coats. Uh, The first story concerns my parents on their honeymoon in 1985. Uh, It was immediately following the sinking of the Rainbow Warrior in Auckland Harbor by French saboteurs. Uh, my parents were traveling into France from the UK when they were arrested and detained on suspicion of being New Zealand counter-terrorists. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth, by the way. They were held in separate holding cells for two days when French agents would come inside the cell smoking cigarettes and yelling at them in French. It was pretty terrifying for my mother, who was only 21 at the time. And after two days, they were released and dropped off at the New Zealand embassy where they learned of the incident back in Auckland. So that's one incident. Okay. The second story is my uh, comes from uh, Great Great Auntie Anne, or Sister Marie. Uh, she's a nun with the Order of the Little Sisters of the Poor, and she is 98 years old this year and is still going strong. Uh, her story originates with the Nazis. She had been with her fellow nuns in rural France, looking after the elderly who had been abandoned as the Nazis approached. Uh, they were also sheltering three to four British airmen who had been shot down nearby. Uh, when the Nazis arrived, they rounded up the nuns and the airmen, accused the nuns of being spies. She and her fellow nuns, uh, of which she was Mother Superior, were taken to a POW camp, interrogated by dis- uh, Gestapo officers. These nuns. Yeah. Uh, eventually, she was marched into the commandant's office, told she was being taken away, believing uh, she was going to be shot. She told them she would not cooperate unless her nuns were also set free. Uh, it turned into a pretty hostile negotiation, and she stuck to her guns, even though at one point she was looking down the barrel of one. Wow. Uh, the commandant finally agreed and bundled all the sisters together on a freight train, where they believed they were going to be executed together. Suddenly, the train stopped. The guards on the train threw the nuns out one by one into the snow. The doors closed, and the train sped off. Uh, Sister Marie eventually led her nuns to the convent, where they spent the last two years of the war not only helping the elderly, but also sheltering and feeding members of the French Resistance. So uh, he said, uh, Tom said, if I could read this uh, on the podcast, I know Auntie Anne would really appreciate the airtime for the convent in which she is dedicated over 70 years to. And I would appreciate letting people know about why nobody in my family feels safe in France. Man. So 98-year-old Auntie Anne, the nun, we thank you for all your work over the years. And I hope you make it to 120. Yeah. Way to thwart the Nazis. Yeah. Nice. How about that? That's from Tom R. Thanks a lot, Tom, for letting us know that. We appreciate it. Um, Wow. I guess if you have a a cool family story, we want to hear that. We're always always up for those. Uh, There's a a plethora that's entirely untrue. There's actually just three. But there's three ways you can get in touch with us. Yes. uh, Electronically. One is through Twitter. Our Twitter handle is uh, S-Y-S-K Podcast. All one word. If you're not following us on Twitter, you're missing out, believe me. Agreed. Um, also, you can hang out with us on Facebook. We're on there pretty frequently. Right? Yeah. Uh, Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. And you can send us an email to StuffPodcast at Discovery.com. 
This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. To try Audible free today and get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash stuff. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?